Well, good morning. Very glad to be here, as always, and uh, glad to have a very special guest who came to my surprise this morning. Where are you, Alan? Where are you? Oh, there you are. Someone earlier said, do you have a twin brother here this morning? I, if I'd have known that was coming, I'd have had a really good time with that. But, but I said, why, yes. My brother Alan and his wife Tony visiting from McDonough, and we're very glad to have them this morning. Uh, you'll find in your bulletin some notes, and this is for you. If you'd like to follow along, if it helps you to do that, then please do so. And uh, have a question for you this morning to begin. And, and I'm not looking for a response from you. This is just for your own personal reflection to think about for a moment. Do you love Jesus? I think that's a fair question. Even at a time like this, 10:22 in the morning, on a Sunday morning, uh, to people who have gotten up out of their beds. Some of you probably got up earlier this morning than you planned to get up <laughs> with the thunder rolling in as it did uh, on, a, on a holiday weekend of all places. I still think that's a, a fair question to ask because there's still way too much of this, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not, I'm not religious. Anybody ever told you something like that? The translation, the way I translate that is, th is simply this. Well, Jesus is all right with me. But the church, eh, not so sure about that. But it's long been my contention that if you love Jesus, you're going to love what he loves. And the one thing that he loves on this earth more than anything else is his church. So much so that in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now let's take that to another level. It's one thing to love the church. Do you love your church? If, if this is the place you call church and the place you come to worship regularly, do you love Holy Cross? My wife Debbie and I do. We love this church. And one of the things we love most about our church is that this is a praying church. It really is. It's just a wonderful thing to know that, that you and those that you love are being prayed for by your church family. Uh, about a week ago, I started reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Any of you familiar with Bonhoeffer? Some of you know, who, good, good. Many of you know who, tremendous German pastor and theologian and martyr who died at the hands of the Nazis. And I'm reading his biography and I came across this just this morning. I, I was doing a little reading in the wee hours and I came across this just this morning. Bonhoeffer says, where a people prays, there is the church. And where the church is, there is never loneliness. Isn't that great? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at our gospel reading from John 17, which is often referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Indeed, it is our Lord's prayer that was offered just hours before his crucifixion. It is the longest recorded prayer of our Lord, and not surprisingly, it is packed with meaning. I mean, entire volumes have been written on these simple 26 verses. Virtually every phrase is a sermon text in and of itself. So much so that as a preacher, I stand before it feeling very much like the proverbial mosquito who found his way one day into a nudist camp. He hardly knew where to start. So. All right. Well, we're going to focus on one verse. We're just going to focus on one verse. Verse 6. Verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept 
your word. Let's unpack that together. It seems at first glance like this is Jesus' prayer to the 11. You recall that earlier in the evening during the Last Supper, at some point Jesus dismisses Judas to go out into the night, and then and only then he begins to instruct his disciples about their future, what life is going to be like when he's gone and what they can expect and how he's actually going to continue to be with them in an even more powerful way via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to fast forward for just a moment to verse 20. Look at verse 20 of John 17. There Jesus says this, and I'm so glad for this. He says, I do not ask for these only, in other words, the 11, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. Isn't that good news? Because that includes you and me. We're part of this as well. Jesus is praying for us. And let's put an even sharper point on this. Jesus is not merely praying for us collectively as his people. You know, I remember as a child saying prayers, and I was, the Lord bless the missionaries in Africa. Just bless them all. Well, that's okay, you know, for a child, I guess. But, but he's not doing that. He's praying for each of his sheep. In John chapter 10, he sets himself forth as the great shepherd of his sheep. And, and don't think that those ancient Jews who heard him say that didn't know the 23rd Psalm. They knew it as well as we do. And they knew the implications of that. The Lord, Jehovah God, is my shepherd. What Jesus is saying is, that's who, I'm who David was writing about. I am, the, I am the Lord, your shepherd. And in John 10, 13, or I'm sorry, John 10, 3, Jesus says of us, his sheep, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. That same apostle tells us in the Revelation, chapter 2, verse 17, that to those who overcome, to those who persevere and keep the faith, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to say more about that in a minute. To those who overcome and persevere, God will give a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. A new name, a name that no one else has, the name by which God knows you. I've always just found that fascinating and comforting to know. But it's really not that surprising. I mean, we know now what they couldn't have known, of course, then. No one has your DNA, right? No one has your fingerprints. And someday, no one will have your name. You will have a name that is God's name for you and not anybody else. So let's, let's look closely at verse 6. First thing, Jesus' earthly task he pray, as he prays to the Father, is, is about to be completed. And notice, notice how he describes that in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Jesus not only taught them about God, but he is Emmanuel. He is God with us, God in the flesh. Not simply the Son of God, but God the Son. And you recall a little earlier that evening, Philip, one of the apostles, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And in my mind's eye, I picture Jesus pausing and perhaps with a sigh, a rolling of the eyes maybe, but I'm sure of this with a smile, with a smile, and very tenderly but very firmly says, have I been with you so long? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That was his task to reveal to us the heart of God and who God is. And notice, secondly, how he describes us, who we are. Verse 6, the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, 
and you gave them to me. Now, if, if you hear it said of someone, man, this guy just really thinks he's God's gift to, oh, say, women. Or that guy, well, that, that guy on TV, he thinks he's God's gift to football. If, when you hear somebody use those words, God's gift to, that's usually not a good thing, is it? And you know what? That's true even if you're a warthog. Did you know that? Ah. For those, if you can't quite read that from where you are, well, look who's here, God's gift to warthogs. How many of you recognize that besides my brother? How many of you remember the, remember the, remember the far side? How many of you miss the far side? We all miss the far side. I couldn't resist. I, I simply couldn't resist it because maybe it will help you to remember something. Now, see, here's the thing, for those of you that haven't, anytime you hear this word, that phrase, God's gift to, you're going to think of warthogs at a cocktail party. Did you know that? It'll just be forever burned into your memory, and you'll never forget it. But, uh, okay, you can take it down there. That's, that's enough. All right, thank you. There we go. That's, that's more spiritual. So, <laughs> but maybe it will help you to remember what I really want you to remember this morning, and that is this, that you... And I, if we are followers of Christ, if we're his children, then we are God's gift to Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, long before Advent, long before the second person of the Godhead, long before he became flesh and dwelt amongst us, God already had a people. Well, when did that happen? Well, it happened a very, very, very long time ago, unless you're young earth creationists, in which case it didn't happen that long ago. But Either way, I'm not going to quibble about that this morning. I couldn't resist that one either. In fact, before there was time, whenever that was, before there was time, here's the way Paul puts it in Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Is that a big deal? Apparently, Jesus thought so, because no less than seven times in these 26 verses of this prayer, he mentions this idea that we are the gift that God the Father from eternity past has now given to him in, in time and space. Or to put it another way, in time and space nearly 2,000 years ago, God the Father entrusted you and I into the care of the great shepherd. But we were not born his sheep, were we? No, notice in verse 6, Jesus says we were given to him out of the world. That's the truth Jesus impressed upon them that same night. You recall a few verses back in chapter 15, where he said to them and to us, by the way, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, the fact that we are God's gift to the Son also suggests the cause for all this. What's the, what's the motivating factor in all this, if you will? Well, it is not to be found in us. That's the bottom line. The Father didn't look around at all the people around here and look around and say, Ah, uh, oh, there's, there's Regis over here. Hi, Regis. You know, she's a great singer. Some of you that come here, she's got a great voice. You know what else? She plays the flute. I don't, I don't see God saying, oh, you know what? We need her on our team. 
Just like when you chose up teams for basketball or softball or whatever as a kid. No, that's not how that works. That's not how that works at all. In reality, the reality of it is expressed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to what he says of us. Back there in eternity past. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he says something equally powerful to the Colossians, where he tells them he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now that, as Jesus has already taught them and us, does not mean that we are to withdraw from the world. Doesn't mean that at all. On the contrary, we are the salt of the earth. We're not supposed to be the salt of the earth. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are to go into the world with the gospel, the good news. And of course, the challenge is for us to do that without becoming of the world. To be in the world, but not of it. And thirdly, finally, notice what Jesus says to the Father about us in his prayer. To all appearances, what we call Good Friday was to Jesus' followers a complete disaster. It was an utter failure. But Sunday, the day of resurrection, changed all that. But Jesus could say to the Father, even on that dark evening, even on that dark evening before Good Friday, he could say, as he said in verse 6, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. I succeeded. I did what I came here to do. And a part of that work was calling those who would come to be known as apostles, or literally sent ones. The many who, and as well, not just the, the 11 here and the, the 12th who would come later, but the many others who would become his followers. And as Jesus prays for them, and as he prays for us, he says in verse 6, simply this, they have kept your word. They have kept your word. Does that surprise you that Jesus said that? They have kept your word. They have kept the faith. You know, you don't have to dig very long or very deep in the Gospels before you find out that those future apostles were at times petty, jealous, impulsive, dense, cowardly, just like us, right? And even on that last evening together, he tells boastful Simon Peter, the rock, before the break of day, you're going to not deny that you know me. Three times. All four gospel writers record that. What happened the next day. Matthew piles on a little bit, if I may say so. He says that Peter denied him with cursing and oaths. Really rubbed it in. But even the others don't come out any better. Jesus said, just before he uttered this prayer, this beautiful prayer, in, in chapter 16, verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You're all going to desert me. But then he says, Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. And what does Jesus in the very next minute, in virtually the same breath, tell the Father about them? What does he say about them? Does he rat them out? Does he complain about them and us? No, very quick little sidebar here. When you pray for others, are you a tattletale? Hmm? You ever, you ever tattle just like you were when you were a kid, rat out your brother or sister? You do that, do you complain to God about them? 
Don't do that. I mean, God already knows, right? But you shouldn't do it. It's not a good idea. What does Jesus say? He says, they have kept your word. Imperfectly? Yeah. One step forward and two back? Yeah, sometimes. Matthew Henry, the English Puritan writer, puts this beautifully and simply. He says this about this passage. He accepts the sincerity of their faith and graciously passes by the infirmity of it. Aren't you glad for that? Without a doubt, Jesus is praying for them and for us in terms of the big picture because he knows what they will become and how empowered, we, we saw the first glimpses of it in Acts this morning in the reading in Acts, how that empowered by the Holy Spirit, these 11 and others will spend their lives. They will give their very lives for the faith and for the advancement of the gospel. They will persevere to the end. They will indeed keep the faith, even when the going gets rough. And the Protestant reformers coined a phrase for all this. It's called the perseverance of the saints. The reformed Anglican view of that is simply this. Listen carefully. We are not saved because we believe and persevere in our faith and in our confidence in the truthfulness of God's word and thus continue in our obedience to it, but rather we believe and persevere in our faith because we are saved. You see that? It's in your, it's in your notes there. I would, I would encourage you to just read that over and get that clear in your mind. We persevere in our faith because we're saved. We're not saved because we persevere. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 6. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me. All those that God the Father from eternity past chose and now gives to the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus said, I'm not losing any of them. Not a one. But we'll raise it. And I take that to mean the church. We'll raise it up on the last day. And he goes on to say, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone, every individual who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And that is why the Apostle Paul could tell the Philippians in his letter, chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this. I am certain of this, that he who began a good work in you, will, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he can say the same about you and me. Now, that, those words are, don't express any confidence in Paul uh, in the folks in Philippi. He's not expressing his confidence in them. What he's expressing is his confidence in the one who called them and us out of the world and gave us to the good shepherd who keeps us. One Anglican put it this way, 19th century Anglican priest. He said this, his name is Marcus Rainsford. We cannot look into the book of life and see whether our names are amongst those whom the Lord says, thine they were and thou gavest them to me. But we can look into the word of God. And if we can honestly say that we have received that word of God and do rest our souls upon the promises contained therein and upon the faithfulness of him whose word it is, then we have the first and all-sufficient evidence of our relationship with God. That's how we have assurance. A more familiar Anglican, John Newton, former slave trader, turned Anglican priest who penned Amazing Grace, the third verse of which speaks of many dangers, toils, and snares. I wonder how many people, when they sing that song, 
still very popular in our culture, isn't it? I wonder how many people realize that these are spiritual dangers that Newton is writing of. Dangers from the world, that world that hated Jesus and that really hates us. The flesh, that power of indwelling sin, and the prince of darkness, the devil himself. All of which work against us and would have us abandon the fight. But that's not going to happen for those that the Father has given to the Son. Newton puts it this way in the third verse, His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And I pray that that is your confidence today. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, grant us this day and every day till the last day the grace that we desperately need to persevere in our faith and obedience to you. And this we ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.